This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Johnny Owens here with poor Kyle Kimbrell. His Astros got freaking walloped um, last night. You guys are, you should be really impressed that I'm here and I'm as chipper as I am because inside I'm a big ball of emotional mush broken hearted well sorry man you know it was bad too we got destroyed last night like it wasn't even wasn't even a ball game most of those games have been pretty good last night that was a butt whipping ugh then they're just like hitting your players with pitches just to put salt. Yeah. In them. Oh, hey, you know, out well, look. That whole business of our pitcher hitting their guy and and their guy thinking it was intentional made no stinking sense. Even the announcers are like, this guy shouldn't be mad. Like the situation makes no sense to hit that guy. So wow. but right. then they hit us and we hit them, you know, yesterday and everything was fine. Nobody thought anything of it. Because they realized, I guess, maybe they got it out of their system the other night. Steven, I'm going to stop Kyle here. He's going to keep going on for another hour. I can talk baseball a lot, Steven. So. <laughs> and I'm recovering, man. I spent four days at F1 Austin with yeah, the was rich that? and the famous, mostly the rich. Um, that was a big bottle of champagne you were drinking. Yeah, that was good, so, huh? Yeah. That was the end of the night. That was, there's other pictures. I didn't see you guys were working that much. <laughs> I don't know. You were you were fully clothed and looked like you were somewhat coherent. So it couldn't have been the end of the night, the photo that you sent. <laughs> well, it might have got a little worse after that. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, was a blast, though, man. But a stupid sport. Like, you get done and we're waiting around. No, I mean, that part's cool. But yeah. – like two of the guys got eliminated for cheating or not cheating, but something happened with their car. So the guy right. that went second, who I was rooting for, he basically, cause if something was a millimeter off, he was kicked off oh. of the podium. So yeah. Racing anyway. is so Imagine if we did that in like football or something here. No. Like crazy. So anyway. Yeah. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Exactly. Well, that, coming from an Astros fan. Hey, I see. Yeah, I, yeah. I, knew, I knew you were going with that. Everybody, everybody saw the setup coming. The Braves, the Braves are the Braves are out, so I can't say anything. But uh, that's right. That's why. Well, Zach's still in hiding. I think you know he's still in hiding from that because Zach sure did sure did talk a lot about how good his Braves were all oh, season long. He was, his, it was he was a puffy chested little dude. Every week there was something about Acuna and run differentials and i'm like just wait till october zach just wait till october. all of a sudden he's all about the eagles you don't hear anything yeah, about yeah. imagine and, that yeah. all of a sudden he's quiet just yeah. a wasted wasted season a historic season wasted in my opinion <laughs> baseball man it's so yeah. brutal it so brutal. yep well that voice you hear that third voice is uh, a guest of ours that we're super excited about because it's a little bit of a different podcast so this is uh uh, kind of a new venture we're, we're running into. And so this, this is Stephen Ramsey. And if you, if you listen to our podcast on VTE um, with Dr. Hillegas was, was one of the, the leaders on that paper that the APTA put out. Um, she was talking about doing compression ultrasounds. And then we had quite a few people texting us, asking us about, you know, how, how would you do these compression ultrasounds? Some of these folks are already kind of dabbling in the ultrasound world. And so Dr. Hillegas reached back out to us um, and said, you know, I think it'd be really cool if people started to learn some of this imaging for safety, for objectivity, musculoskeletal imaging, or, you know, maybe pulmonary imaging or things like that. And I have a rock star in the ultrasound imaging world that seems like would be a perfect fit for you guys to kind of work together. And so she linked us up with Stephen Ramsey, um, who knows this ultrasound imaging backwards and forwards. I think you have what, five CSM talks this year? Yeah, on it, it's Stephen's? Too, too many. Yeah, too, too many, many, too many. Yeah. So um, he's, he's in high demand. And what we are doing is we've partnered up with Stephen and we're going to start um, doing ultrasound imaging courses um, two day weekend courses where he kind of shares his knowledge 
and um, gets us all learned up on it. So he's going to be able to explain this a lot better than I can. But everyone we talk to about this course um, seems to be super excited about being able to, to take this on. And we think this is going to be the future. The more objective we can be um, with things that we do, the better, as well as, as the safety piece um, that we've talked about as well. So Stephen, welcome to ORS. Welcome to the podcast. What's up, brother? Yeah, it's an honor, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, even as a Braves fan, you guys have been really welcoming, which is nice. You got um, Zach <laughs> down there. So yeah, yeah. we've already learned uh, to kind of deal with the Braves side. Um, yeah. Give us your background a little bit. So um, I don't want to read your CV, but but give me the highlights. Yeah. Um, so I've been a PT, graduated in 2014 and and basically went straight into a residency program. I went into a residency in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy, primarily because I was working in the critical care setting and felt ill-equipped with what I gained from school. Um, and so I've been working in the CBIQ setting. Um, yeah, I've been yeah. working in that setting for a while um, since I graduated and primarily in a CVICU working with patients on ECMO and other forms of mechanical support. Most of my research clinically is related to ICU early mobility and um, all these advanced devices that keep people alive when in many ways, maybe they shouldn't be still alive. So um, I think that's an exciting part of our profession. But if I'm being honest, what I, the reason I got into point of care ultrasound or ultrasound in general was because I was a bored physical therapist. I felt like I could contribute more uh, to the medical team than I was contributing at the time. And I felt like diagnostic imaging was one of the ways uh, that I could do that especially considering the whole premise of point of care ultrasound is a real-time dynamic assessment of function, whether that's musculoskeletal or cardiac or, or vascular. And I felt like that pairs really nicely with the profession that claims that we move people a lot. It'd be really cool to be able to objectively measure movement of different organs um, and function of different organs while they move. So I get, that's how I got into it. And like many things, I felt like I sort of kind of struggled through the, the self-teaching of it. So I didn't really go to courses. I didn't really have a ton of um, direct education that way. I did a lot of on-the-job kind of training with uh, physician assistants and, and MDs in the ICU. Um, and all of them were, as you would imagine, basically just saying, why would you need to know this? Um, and it was up to me to prove why I felt like it was valuable to our profession. So I, my background in ultrasound is cardiovascular and pulmonary primarily. So I do a lot of echo, um, a lot of aortic assessments, um, IVC, as well as DVT assessments, and then a lot of lung ultrasound, but have gotten um, my hands on a lot of the MSK world too. So uh, shoulder, elbow, uh, knee, hip um, measurements of atrophy or hypertrophy, something that I've started to do quite a bit. And that has some direct application of the ICU, but certainly yeah. a ton of application in the outpatient world. So um, that's the brief CV. I have a longer version for the the extended podcast. Oh, no, that was good, Stephen. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut them off there. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get pushback at all from the MDs or PAs? Yeah. I, you know, so I started this in 2017, 2016, and I got pushback then and I get pushback today. I mean, the reality is this is still something that's so new to our profession. Uh, I, I, the nice thing about ultrasound that's unique is that it's objective. It's, it's hard to push back on somebody that's bringing an image or a video that you can put in the face of somebody that's skeptical, right? So I think that's the big benefit of this. And, and I still get the, why are you doing this or what does it tell you? But with a quick conversation, I think it quickly turns into, okay, now how do we, how do we act on this information that you brought? So I think it certainly has enhanced my clinical practice and brought a ton of value to the patients that I see. But like you said, you know, early, earlier on, I think that this is the next thing in, in the rehab profession in general, because I think it's just a way to make us a lot more objective um, and a way to screen our patients that maybe don't have a primary musculoskeletal pathology, right? If there's a cardiac problem that mimics, you know, something else, then this would be a great way to find it. So yeah, you know, we, we had a conversation early on with you. I mean, if even just talking about VTEs, and you're like, well, yeah, but what if you find it? Are you comfortable, you know, that you diagnosed that or found it? But 
I would rather find it and be on the safe side than not know this is going on at all. You stand yeah. on it a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, what we have, if you think traditionally in PT, what we have is basically just symptomology. Do they have redness and edema? Do they, you know, you throw out the Homan sign with some other archaic tests. But, you know, the, the question is, if I do find something, what's the risk there? I think that there's there's no risk because that just maybe informs my consultation to the medical team. There is risk with not looking for it and not finding something, right? There's not just risk from, you know, you, your treatment causing harm, but there's, I mean, that harm could lead to death ultimately, right? If there's a DVT. So I think that there's certainly a lot more benefit than risk to scanning patients, especially patients that have risk factors for VTE, which is 90% of our population. So, yeah, we, you know, in, at our base, we had one of these big GE $40,000 systems, um, so there were, there was a barrier to entry there. And now the world has completely changed where there's, there's these handhelds, you can even do them on your phone or your iPad. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to buy one of these big systems, but they, they might not know these other things are out there. And then, you know, as we've talked, you know, even with some of the companies that make these systems, it's the education piece is, is, is a big missing component. And that, you know, it sounds like, you know, it's hard to learn this in a weekend course. You almost have to continue to kind of send in images and, and make sure you're doing well. Uh, but also AI technology might even make this even more feasible. You still need the education, but the machines might actually start to be smarter. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on the the portable machines. I mean, you know, almost every company has come out with a handheld machine. Um, and so the barrier to entry into ultrasound is a lot lower from a financial standpoint. I mean, you can get them, you can get a handheld ultrasound for $2,500 now, which, you know, from, from on our PT budget sometimes is a lot, but the, the, the reality of the value that you get with that is, I mean, it, it's a no brainer. Um, yeah. that's the first side. And I think you're exactly right. Like the, the actual AI technology that's coming out in certain machines and likely to be in all machines going forward, it's ensuring that even a relatively novice scanner should be able to find and obtain clear images and be able to get quality data. Because the truth about ultrasound is if you're not scanning the right area and not scanning, scanning with good technique, you're, it's a waste of time, you know, mm -hmm. so this AI technology and a lot of the guidance that some of this stuff will provide is huge for those of us that, that want to get into ultrasound. And I think that's, you know, that's only a couple of years away from being in almost every handheld, I imagine. When you're working in the in the hospital in the acute care setting, are you typically using one of the big ultrasounds or walking with a, a smaller probe? Yeah, both. I mean, I think that depends. I mean, there's still going to be limitations to the handheld. I mean, you're still going to have some uh, some difficulty getting some of the high kind of temporal resolution images. Some of the cardiac imaging is particularly hard with a handheld. Um, so I'll still use the big machines in the ICU because it's right there. But if I'm looking at uh, musculoskeletal, something that needs high frequency and really kind of shallow depth, uh, the portables are pretty good. So looking at the lungs or looking at musculoskeletal tissue is pretty easy. Anything that I need deeper than that, I tend to get a bigger machine. Um, but I, you know, for most of us in the PT world, the handhelds are going to be all we need uh, yeah. especially to get started. On the acute care side, can you kind of take us through some of the assessments you might do in your day? Because that's that's a different world from what we typically do, but from pulmonary to aorta to, to cardiac and, and what you're looking for. Yeah, um, that is, I think a lot of times I'm thinking I'm just kind of playing around, uh, which is not true. I'm actually trying to get <laughs> valuable data, but, you know, in, in a cardiac ICU, there's no shortage of images that you have access to that have been done in their admission. But I think what I tend to try to do is try to rule in or rule out a patient as far as how appropriate they are for therapy. For example, if a patient is hypotensive, I may ultrasound their IVC, their inferior vena cava, and see if it's a, a volume-related hypotension. In other words, do they just need fluid? And if they do need fluid, well, then I better get them some fluid before I sit them up, because we all know what's going to happen if they're intravascularly dry and I sit them up, they're going to probably syncopize and everybody's gonna be mad at me about, you know, so I think that's one of the rule in rule outs. And I also think, like I mentioned before, dynamic imaging is something that is completely new to this world, 
not just PT, but in medicine. So capturing contractility and stroke volume and function with movement as the sympathetic nervous system kicks in is, is I think something that is huge for our profession, uh, being able to, to quantify and qualify some of that. Um, other than that, I'm looking for general like lung function or any sort of consolidations that may be present that maybe x-ray gave me some indications for or gave me some tips that might be there. And I'm trying to just evaluate it a little further with an ultrasound. Um, and the last thing I'll say on that is this is not new to physiotherapy when you're looking overseas across the pond. I mean, this is something that uh, respiratory physiotherapists have been doing for years. And there's tons of articles that have even been published in the past couple of years about how to use ultrasound to measure diaphragm thickness or diaphragmatic excursion as a means to tell, tell if a patient's ready to come off a ventilator. I mean, that stuff right there is huge. It's huge yeah. for our clinical practice to have that kind of input. And that's something that we could do here in the States that we haven't taken the reins of that yet, but it's something I think that's coming. If we're looking then at something from a safety profile, like a compression ultrasound, can you talk about how hard that is to measure and, and what the steps are for that? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is going to be the first to hit the profession outside of just MSK, uh, hit the outpatient world is this compression ultrasound. I mean, you can within, you know, uh, 30 to 45 seconds, you're looking for basically compressibility of veins at a few specific areas. And what research shows is if there's compressibility of the veins around uh, the groin and then compressibility of the veins in the popliteal space, then you can rule out with not 100% certainty, but some confidence that there's not going to be a, a, a DVT in the length of that vessel. Um, and what we know to be true about DVT is anything distal to that, there's a low likelihood that a yeah. calf or you know lower DVT is going to propagate up and cause any problems long-term. So if we can rule out the two most common places, which is that the femoral nerve or femoral uh, vein up there, uh, at the saphenous junction and then down in the popliteal fossa, then, then we should be pretty confident. I think the sensitivity specificity are both over 90%. So uh, it's a, it's a really easy test. And again, it takes 30 seconds. Yeah. That ease. I mean, that's almost like a no brainer there. Cause we, we do get lots of time, especially with the teams, you know, I, I've got this guy and, you know, a history of DVT, you know, can we do something like BFR? Can we not, you know, should we be mobilizing, um, and, and, and have something like that at their ease is, is, is huge. Um, yeah. or if they currently were diagnosed with a DVT, um, you know, where do we stand on that compression? Yeah, I think that that's a big question. I also think that there's obviously, if you give a diagnostic tool to, you know, a bunch of new healthcare professionals to this world and they start getting, they start to find some things, they're going to be a lot of incidental findings that otherwise that's the only, I think hard part about this is what do we do with things that we find that we didn't expect to find? Right. And then how red that... Exactly. Yeah. And, then, and then for us as, as PTs, it's not just about obtaining imaging. It's about the next step. It's the same thing for blood pressure measurements. It's not just about getting the blood pressure, which I recommend as a cardiovascular PT to get it, take it. What? But what? Blood plug. Pressure. Nice plug. I like right. it. Exactly. And then vitals, yeah, are vital. vitals are vital hashtag. So it's not just that though. It's what do you do with that information? That's going to be the same question for diagnostic imaging. And even a bigger question is what do we actually do clinically with the information that we get? And, you know, that's a big soapbox of mine that I won't use this platform for, but I, I just feel like the big question, I guess, as a profession is, are we ready for that autonomy? Even though we've said that we want to be autonomous for years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a big question. Well, we all want direct access till we don't, you know, exactly. like, oh, crap, I, I got, the, I got to worry about this liability yeah. or, yeah. or this autonomy. It sounds yeah. real good in school when you're going through and then all of a sudden yeah. you, you get out and you're like, oh wait, this is on my back now. Yeah. I'm my own boss, uh, but yeah. can you help me with this? Cause I don't know how to do it. So. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey so, I got a question you know, about the compression ultrasound to back yeah. up just a little bit. How do you do the compression? Are you just pushing with the probe or. Yep, exactly. Are you just like mashing as hard as you can kind of deal or? So you're just looking for the, you know, does the vein collapse fully? So whatever pressure that requires, I mean, obviously, you know, okay. non-collapsible, it's not a lot of pressure, but a non-collapsible vein is going to be high likelihood for a thrombus in that area. And at times, yeah. 
you can even see the thrombus in the lumen of the vein. Um, but it's, I mean, it's really gentle pressure that collapses veins. And that's actually, that speaks more to technique is there's a way, I mean, there's, you start to scan these things and you realize that I don't even, I can't even find a vein. And it's probably that you're pushing too hard already and you've already collapsed. Mm, So um, that just goes with, you know, back to Johnny's point that this is still going to require quite a bit of education and hands-on sort of lab education to get the skills for this. Yeah. Well, we know from the BFR world, I mean, just with our tourniquets, we can get venous occlusion, really low pressures. It doesn't, it doesn't take much at all. Um, And everyone's a little bit different with collaterals, but yeah, it's not a lot. So, um, you know, I remember trying to do freaking like transverse abdominis and stuff back when the, that was like the the hot and heavy thing in the military. And, and you know, some of that stuff was a little bit tougher for me, but, you know, quad you know, was, was fairly straightforward. But can you talk about from the MSK side, like just trying to get different different muscles in the shoulder versus ankle versus, versus thigh and, and what the techniques and how hard it is? Yeah. You know, each joint has its, uh, intricacies. Uh, I remember when I was doing the elbow and learning the elbow, which seemed like, man, this is going to be so straightforward. I mean, I think, uh, there's some complexity there that requires, uh, some technique. And I think the hard part about MSK is the way that the probe interacts with some of the tissues, the way the ultrasound beams interact is that there's this concept called anisotropy, which, basically creates artifact where I can't, it, you know, for tendons specifically, where I can't really see a tendon depending on the angle of my ultrasound. And I think that that's going to fool a lot of people when they get into this to thinking that there's full tendon ruptures and all that stuff. And it's just a, a really quick fix and a, you know, quick uh, maneuver of the probe, but um, that's a general term. But as far as actually finding the tendons and watching the the joints move in real time, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I mean, there's, I think for me, when I was studying the shoulder and the elbow, I think it probably took me two weeks to get a, a systematic approach down. Right. And I think that's where we start is what's the systematic approach to the shoulder. Where should I start? And once I felt like I had that down, it, it takes really that's the hard part is the months of scanning, um, experience that, that you need. Because it's one thing to look at anatomy; it's another thing to actually find pathology and, and know what that means. So, um, but my encouragement to people, and that shouldn't be a discouragement. My encouragement is that let's start just looking at the anatomy, right? As a mm-hmm. profession, we are anatomy experts. Let's evaluate the anatomy, and once we get really good about finding what normal anatomy looks like, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to find out what abnormal anatomy looks like. So, that's the the encouragement. I would say that it's. Uh, you know, you start with these kind of bite-sized uh, areas and then progress from there. Yeah. And it, it, I think mentoring, like you said, part of this course will be ongoing mentorship and in, in getting these scans and, and trying to make sure that people are proficient because yeah. it would be amazing to have a full-on residency type certification as, as because if we embrace this, I mean, we are anatomy experts, as you said, and there's just so much that we could probably use this for. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree, and I think that's the conversation going on in our profession now. Is where does this fit in terms of education? Because it's not a question of if this is important. Uh, this is a question of where do we actually fit it? Does it fit into entry level? Uh, which I think the answer is yes. Does it fit into residency training? Yes. Does it fit into post professional courses? Absolutely. I think uh, you know you could start to see specific residencies pop up that are for you know diagnostic imaging or ultrasound. I think that's certainly the case. I think it's so broad. I mean, you've got people in hemophilia using ultrasound all the way to people looking at the pelvic floor to crazy PTs like me doing cardiac assessments. And so it's such a broad topic that I think it's um, it probably fits best in each individual practice area um, initially until, until we get kind of our, our feet wet with it. One of the things that we're very interested in in the blood flow restriction side is atrophy to hypertrophy and mm-hmm. making sure that we're seeing our intervention is doing something. And, you know, if, if BFR is going right, you should see changes and sometimes changes kind of rather rapidly. So, you know, if you were to say in this scenario, we have someone you know, post-op knee surgery come in, they're pretty atrophied and we're going to apply this intervention and, and we want to see over time are we making an objective change? How would you go about getting those measurements? Uh, you know, serial measurements, how often, 
Um, and, and, and the complexity of always making sure you're at the same landmarks. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think I would actually start with the, the pre-screening process, which would include compression ultrasound to rule in or rule out thrombus, okay. right? I think that's the first question. Um, and I think once that, that gate is hurdled, then I think we go to looking at some form of cross-sectional area or thickness measurement. So taking the, the thigh or the quad, I think you get um, there and there's, standard approaches to this that have been well-documented in literature in the ICU for atrophy and certainly applicable to the outpatient, but finding a point that is the same distance from the ASIS and the superior pole of the patella, being able to measure cross-sectional area or thickness at that point and do that pre and post, right, for immediate hypertrophy. But then I think you also can do that serially in, on every in intervention. Whether you're using BFR or not, right? So sometimes you you may not use BFR, and you may want to just see, hey, are we still maintaining the gains that we had from the last session? Um, and I think the thing that is starting to be studied a little bit is, and we've talked about the benefit of the compression therapy, not just on muscle hypertrophy, but on the benefits of of shear stress and nitric oxide release and all the yeah. vascular benefits of BFR. Um, you know, and, and you, you, you guys and I, we've talked about some papers that are have some bold claims related to vascular health and endothelial function, and it makes a lot of sense physiologically. So I think the other thing is, do we measure uh, vessel diameter, arterial diameter, as well as blood flow velocity and see changes in that? And that's probably not as directly applicable to BFR, but I think it'd be interesting data to start to, to gather on these patients. Just to see what happens pre it, it would for sure, I think, especially if you're I've envisioned a few different scenarios where that that information could be kind of relevant. You know, we think one with the use of ischemic preconditioning by all these teams as a recovery modality, you, you wonder at what point do you start to get some vasodilation in the mm -hmm. in that vascular system, you know? Like yeah. at what point does the tourniquet cause that result, um, which certainly is going to play a role in any sort of reperfusion that they get once that thing deflates. And you wonder if that changes over time, you know, does, cause this has been my question is, does the, does the system adapt at some point to where, you know, I mean, it, it adapts to everything else we or the human body does. It makes sense that it might to that. And so then you would need to know that really in order to give the, same level of intervention that you gave say at an initial setting or, or 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 maybe you have to there's a point at which we learn now we need to add some sort of exercise or something like that to kind of recreate this um vasodilation increases in shear stress reperfusion results all of that so um i think it's interesting very on that front but then also you kind of look at it from the side of in the, in the ICU, you know, how quickly are these changes happening to the vascular systems, you know, or what is the kind of minimal level intervention that we could potentially give them that physiologically is doing something that that stuff could be immensely valuable. Yeah. That, that's something in my, in our ICU that we, we talked about a little bit and we've have, you know, obviously patients on ECMO with cannulas running down their thigh, it's hard to What's get a ECMO. Right. It's a, it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So basically just an external heart and lung machine. Um, okay. Got it. So, so these are patients that, you know, without this machine certainly are not alive, you know? So yeah. it's stuff like that, that I'm like, Hey, you know, to our attending, Hey, I'm going to put a cuff on their thigh and occlude blood flow. And they're like, wait a second, we just restored blood flow with this machine. Don't occlude yeah. it. You know? So I think it's, it's yeah. stuff like that I think is in certain populations, it, it may, you know, that may be a challenge, but in most of our ICU populations, our general ICU, it's, this is a no brainer intervention that you're exactly right. I think gets us a lot of bang for our buck because the reality is their endurance is so limited that a short session of mobilization with the addition of blood flow restriction may be exponential for them. It may be something that actually, yeah. you know, provides a ton of value. Something you couldn't achieve otherwise with that individual. Exactly. No. And we, and we see, I mean, these people, again, you hear the adage of how much muscle mass kind of that you lose per each day of bed rest. But I mean, these people, it takes months to years to rehab if from ever. even, yeah, if ever. And yeah. from a, from a relatively short ICU, there's, there's a lasting effect. So I think starting this intervention early, but then again, to your point, getting some objective data is 
because our profession is moving towards outcome-based yes you know, intervention, right and so yeah. if what we're doing in the icu is not actually helping then let's not do it let's do something else right and i think that's where we don't we don't really have great um the data has the data has not caught up to clinical practice yet so i think this yeah. is one way that certainly I, I think that's a cool point on the um just you know the ICU and talking about muscle mass and because I imagine this like we get to a point where I get the report from the therapist that they and it serially goes from like ICU to inpatient rehab to wherever to the outpatient and we have these serial measurements of the vastus lateralis just showing a, you know and then we can kind of correlate that to these individuals function their quadriceps forced output. And, and now we have really kind of objective data to say to these insurance companies, like, look, dude, you've got to, you got to pay more for this. You know, it's going to take a time to restore this stuff. We have the data showing you that this is kind of where they started. This is what they've, how much they've lost. Um, we can kind of handicap that to a degree, how long it'll take to restore, but it also might help us kind of figure out if there's, you know, interventions that, um, I mean, medications that maybe physicians could prescribe to kind of help nudge those things along, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, on the vascular side, you know, I, we've always kind of said that mm -hmm. what BFR does to the vascular system seems like it might be this just massive win. Um, yeah. And so if, if what some of the studies are showing, you get this arterial compliance improvement and now we're in, and, and, you know, it's like four weeks you come in and you go to PT to do these interventions and we're tracking and showing, okay, we've improved your arterial compliance. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got these PVD patients who have, you know, mm -hmm. less ischemic um, conditions when they're walking or, or whatever. That's, that's mm -hmm. a whole new ball game to go after insurance payers. You know, now we're, yeah. we're affecting the vascular system and we're objectively measuring it. I mean, that's yeah. huge. Yeah. Yeah. Not only from a cross-sectional area of the muscle, right? Cause I think, you know, if you, if you don't have great oxygen supplied to the muscles and the legs, cause you're ischemic, you're not going to build muscle. And I think that's right. one side, but the other side is you can actually literally calculate their velocity, the blood flow velocity yeah. pre and post again, not in session to session and week to week and actually see changes in, in yeah. their you know actual disease process, which is really cool. And that could be really encouraging for the patient. patients as well as yeah. practitioners, you know? Yeah. Yeah. PG. I mean, yeah, I think mean, that's one of the hardest things about our profession. And I say it just about every weekend when I teach, but that's why I like exercise because we kind of know that some of the targets that we need to hit and we can kind of check that box at that point. Like, all right, they earned some muscle today because I know we did enough reps and sets and load and then they're going to come in later in the week. And like, we all right, we know we did enough, but I, I still want to know how long I got a range of motion and knee for before I increase their flexion or extension. Like somebody please send me that paper where anybody's even tried to look at it, you know, but you yeah, like, do it. We got to do it. Well, like I said, though, for the patient and the practitioner, like yeah. having a solid yeah. objective measurements as a practitioner is so empowering. Cause like you said, sometimes this profession sucks. And you're just like, yeah, it's I, I think, I don't know that, that hop looked like it was pretty good, you know, side to side or whatever. This, this is like completely empowering. That's why I love this stuff. That's why, you know, when I was at CFI, we had every toy in the world and it made going to work awesome because it's like, cool, we're measuring everything. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think you can also look at, you know, like we talked about diagnostic ultrasound for like the joint, you know, and tendon health. You can actually see tendinopathy uh, yeah. and actually see that improve over time, too, because, I mean, I think there's I mean, I would imagine that BFR and sheer stress does not just impact the vasculature, right? I think that there's yeah. all of this, like, you know, the local microvasculature is getting benefited from nitric oxide release and, and, and vasodilation as well. So I think you actually, you, there, there's a, it makes sense physiologically, whether the data supports it, that the actual tendinopathies actually improve with this too. So. Yeah, I forgot what it was, you know, even if you see that they're, um, you know, that, that angiogenic response, you know, the vascular bed in, in the tendon isn't great to have when you have a tendinopathy, but right. um, when it does improve, there is a linear correlation in symptomology as well. So you should see as, as that's clearing up. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's interesting. That paper that Kyle sent me uh, about PTs being able to do ultrasound, you know, or where's the future in this? It's mm -hmm. diagnostic, it's interventional, and it is research. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the clinical setting, you know, sometimes it's like, man, the research seems really cool, but I'd never be able to reproduce that 
Well, with this, you could. Yeah. I mean, so many of these BFR papers, it's, it's measuring strength, it's measuring hypertrophy, or yeah. you're measuring, you know, arterial compliance. Yeah. Can you measure a pination angle with, with the, yeah. okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so all that stuff. I mean, I think the gap between the research world and the clinical world is smaller with ultrasound than it is with some other things. Yeah. I mean, I, the population may be a slightly different, but you know, I think that it's, I think that that is one way where you can, you can drop research straight into the clinical setting and start to start to use it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, there was, um, I think that was one of the studies that Harden Simmons did actually, where they, they did, they used ultrasound to measure the swelling response. They were specifically looking at the swelling response, but they also were capturing how that swelling affected the pination, pination mm-hmm. angle. Um, cause as the, the, the muscle cell swelled, it would kind of alter that, yeah. its orientation. So there's, there's tons of things coming out on that. I, mean, I think that's the one, one place though, that the portable, ultrasounds are still struggle a little bit compared to the really, really high frequency, mm-hmm. high fidelity machines. So, but I mean, I think again, you look at the progress we've been the handhelds, you know, I think that there's some units that are, you know, 15 megahertz uh, frequency and getting some really clear images. So I think it's a matter of time before the portables are, are equal to some of these yeah. bigger machines. They're just going to get better and better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's getting smaller and smaller and better and better. It's just a, it's a really fascinating growth. And Doing a dynamic muscular contraction image, that's, that seems, I've, you know, other than the TRA stuff that I did, is that hard? Uh, no, I mean, if you if you find the muscle belly and, and it's really easy to see the changes, both in the short axis and long axis, you see the muscle contract. I think where I've primarily looked at this is at the actual the myotendinous junction and the tendon insertion onto the, the bone, the enthesis on the bone, but, you know, certainly could get middle of the muscle and actually see changes in, in, you know, sort of the physiology there. Um, so that's not, not a hard measurement at all. Okay. And then what about bone? Yeah. Bone is tougher, uh, yeah. from an, just the ultrasound physics and how it, how the ultrasound waves interact with bone, because it's such a highly reflective surface. What you can do with some degree of certainty is you can basically look at the surface of the bone the articular surface and see if there's actually fractures or, or, you know, floating bodies and things in, in the joint space. Um, so that is there where you can start to see tendon pulling bone away from, you know, the cortical bone away, um, being able, you can't evaluate the depth of the bone and certainly can't evaluate the actual, uh, you know, the, the internal aspects of the bone, uh, really at all because that surface is so reflective. But it's definitely good from a, a rule in, rule out. Is this a, an avulsed, you know, injury here? We can see that with some certainty. It, looking at actual joint, are there things that you've been able to look at diagnostically within the joint itself of, okay, I, I do see there there could be a lesion on the articular cartilage or yeah. um, sort of meniscal pathology. Yeah, that's and that's where a lot of this stuff, I think there's there's PTs that are doing this every day. Um, and it's a smaller network than I would think, but there's PTs across the country that are, you know, diagnosing tendon pathologies, hemarthroses, they're diagnosing fractures, they're diagnosing, you know, complete tendon ruptures uh, on a daily basis. Um, and so, yeah, certainly something that you can see again with some clarity. And there's there's physician groups in the sports medicine world that are going exclusively to their first line imaging being diagnostic yeah. imaging before yeah. they do anything else. Because the one thing to your point earlier, the one thing that diagnostic ultrasound allows you to do is to get dynamic images of the joint. You can actually see the joint moving mm-hmm. and maybe a tendon pathology doesn't present itself until you actually get that full range of motion at that joint and start to see that that distal thesis of that tendon. And then now all of a sudden, no, oh, there's the problem. That's where we're actually having issues. So yeah. it's unique in that way for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sports teams, I mean, this is a sideline intervention that is, you know, out there with all of them. It's, it's very easy to do and get a quick diagnosis. So definitely seeing it from a sideline perspective. You know, the other area that I was, I was just thinking as y'all were talking and we've talked a little bit, like, it seems like there's an obvious kind of military application here, but even like these municipalities that are, like Denver, Colorado, where they're starting to hire physical therapists, athletic trainers, strength coaches. And and one of the ways that they function is in a direct access kind of um, space. But, you know, those groups are going to work pretty closely with their referring providers and whatnot. It's just, you're just like, you make the physician's job like that much 
better at some point because you've already gone in, saw the PT or whatever. They've got their report, goes back to them. Um, I could just see it really kind of helping that yeah. space a lot too. Yeah, I think, you know, I see this as a double-edged sword. And so I'll talk about the positive and also I'll talk about the the, the negative potentially. You know, you put this yeah. in the hands of every PT. The positive is, I mean, you talk about how highly you're regarded among your referral source is if you're using this diagnostic modality and getting really good objective images and communicating with the physicians as a peer, yeah. that's a huge deal. Now, the alternative is you're getting really bad images, making really bad assumptions, <laughs> And then getting less yeah. referrals. So I think there's a caution to this too, right? It, it, you know, that's where, again, I don't want to continue to talk about this, but the, the, the training is so important, right? Yeah. Getting quality images, getting continued mentorship is such a huge piece of this. Because I think the last thing we need as a profession that's getting into this space is to do a poor job with how we present it to the medical team and then there would be some sort of backlash for that. So yeah, we're seeing it with BFR. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's why we harp on our, you know, the course. And I think just really understanding how to do it right just seems to really help with everything. And then they're always yeah. just dummies that Darwin will take care of. They just can't get it no matter what. So Yeah. And that's but, okay. I mean, this doesn't have to be the whole profession, right? This this is the high yeah, achiever yeah. people that are really secure. interested in, in the yeah. data. So. I know, Stephen, so I was looking at... Um, some of the requirements like for the physicians for ultrasound to be, is it a registered MSK or yeah. something, something like that. And there's a whole, like a test you take and that sort of thing. Um, and it looks like the ortho Academy is working pretty closely with APTA as well as that a physician accrediting body to yeah. roll this out to PTs to where basically, you know, PT could at some point take this test and, um, and be you know credentialed yeah in you know, this what, what does that pro what does that education process kind of look like and how does what like we're going to be doing fit into that and that sort of thing yeah that's a, a great question so it gives me a chance to talk about you know all the work that's been done on the front end of this there's people that are truly pioneers of this that have created a relationship with these traditionally physician-based organizations that recognize yeah. physical therapists as diagnostic practitioners that recognize physical therapists as the experts in anatomy and have made up, you know, through the APTA and ARDMS and all these groups kind of working together, they've made a way for PTs to have a pathway to sit for their RMSK, not just the sonography version, but the, through the APCA, which is the physician credentialing side of that. So, right. and not only sit for it, right. There's people across the country that have sat for it and, and nailed it and have, passed these tests and demonstrated that they are on par with, you know, anybody out there from a diagnostic ultrasound standpoint. Um, the hard thing about, you know, the credentialing thing is going to be a big question. And where we go from that standpoint as a profession is going to be a big, a big question mark. I think, you know, requiring it to be a credentialed type of skill probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's nice to know that there's options for uh, sort of quasi specialization in the, in these various areas, um, whether you want to get, um, the RDCS, which is specific to cardiac sonography or the RMSK that's, you know, musculoskeletal. So, um, but the RMSK is the first one that really PTs are sitting for and, and passing and actually, um, making a huge, uh, huge splash from that side of things. Very cool. So I think we need to go over kind of what your course is like. I was just looking at, I, you know, just talking about the advancements of where we're going to see things, there's that muscle sound um, unit that I sent to you, which is using ultrasound to measure malnutrition and measure cachexia and, and sarcopenia in individuals, which is going to be nuts of, of things that we might be able to do in some of these populations. And when I was speaking at Southwest Research Institute, I mean, they have an ultrasound that's about to come out that looks at muscle at the fiber level, and then they are moving next to cellular level. Um, yeah. so it's, it's going to be freaking nuts what we do with this stuff, man. Right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I'm, I'm, I mean that you talk about the application, in the ICU right there, it's, it's huge, right? Yeah. Because one thing that we know to be true is nutrition is so valuable on these patients that can't eat by yeah. mouth for, for weeks and weeks. I mean, how are we actually supporting them and how are we supporting them enough? Right. Yeah. That's the question. Cause they're not going to build muscle if we're not supporting them. So yeah. Now you're going to be able to measure it. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. 
All right, man. So let's let's go over your course, how it's going to roll. It's a two-day, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, yeah so um, I, I'm excited about it. I think this is truly a general diagnostic ultrasound course. Um, it's, you know, the first whole day is MSK. So um, we'll do some shoulder and elbow, knee. We'll do some cross-sectional area measurements and, and thickness measurements. Uh, we'll, we'll throw in some Achilles tendon as well. Um, that'll be all day one. Now, uh, probably a third of that day is is truly just didactic, getting familiar with what it looks like on an ultrasound. And then the, the whole second part or majority of the day is going to be getting an ultrasound probe in your hand and, and scanning and getting comfortable with each of the joints and, and the various techniques for scanning. And then a big part of that has to be what's the clinical application? Um, how do we actually leave that day and start to apply it the next day? Um, is going to be a huge kind of point of conversation, um, which obviously is unique to each area that you're practicing in. So whoever is attending, it's dependent on where you're practicing. The second day is really, I, I say, kind of my love, which is the heart, the lungs, the aorta, um, and then DVT. So spending some time there, which I think, you know, on the surface, I think that there's, I've talked to PTs about this. On the surface, the question is, well, why do I you know, what would be the benefit of that? Or I've had people say, I want to come to the MSK part, but not the second part. And I think many of the things we've already talked about is the benefit of that second day is the differential diagnosis part in your clinic Mm -hmm. or the actual quantitative data when you're exercising somebody to actually see cardiac function change or rule in or rule out pneumonia or lung pathology. I think those things are are valuable and, and something that if we, if I told PTs, they could do it, they'd be excited. I think it's just us learning that we can actually do stuff like that. Yeah, explaining that. Yeah. And then I think to, to your point, I think going after the course, there's gotta be some form of resource sharing or mentorship that occurs, um, which is a platform that I'd like to host, you know, through my own personal company is just, Hey, if you've got, if you're new to ultrasound, why don't you set up a you know meeting with experts and send the images, talk over the images. There's even you know, through GE and I think other probes have this, the portable scans. You can actually through the app on your phone scan in real time and video call with anybody else that has the app. I mean, that stuff is that's nuts. Yeah. Be able to, oh. you know, hey, I'm gonna you know set up an hour meeting when I have a patient that I know I want to ultrasound, but I want to call in the expert when I'm doing it and get some feedback in real time. That's and that's super interesting. That yeah, stuff is so right. cool. So yeah. um that's gonna be the big piece that I think we're all figuring out. What does that look like after you get the initial training? What does it look like to to maintain some competency there? Because it can, you know, you can lose the skill pretty quickly as, as quick as you as you gain it. So that's Whatever a big question. Well, and poor Steven, you're going to have to train all of us. Yeah. Because we're all dying to take this course. Your first course is in Atlanta, um, right. your, your hometown. And so what's the date again? Shoot, I should have looked it up. Ahead uh, of the 11th and 12th of November. 11th and 12th of November in Atlanta. And so if you go to our website, we have a, a link that'll take you directly to how to register for this course. I'll also throw out there, he is charging way too little for this course, so. Get in while the getting's good. Get in while you can. <laughs> this, this price point. What? Where are we at now? Are we even? I think we settled at eight hundred. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's, it's so eight hundred today. Eight hundred days. days. Yeah. 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 All right, man. Well, yeah. Get in while the getting's good. Um, and so we're just now got this going. We're already getting some registrations. Um, I heard come in. And so everyone, it's not at a huge clinic. It's at Zach's clinic. Um, so space will be limited and Stevens um, limited in how many people he can teach on this, but it's going to be. Yeah, enrollment, simple. generally speaking, is going to, which is part of the reason we also are like, yeah, it's, it's cheap because you're going to get a small class. It's a lot of, a lot of time yeah. with the instructor, you know, so yeah. Um, yeah. We're the real expert in this space. Yeah. I think yeah. the benefit to this, this type of course, and I've kind of, uh, audited some courses like this on the medical side. I mean, you've got, you talk about learner to, to uh, expert ratio has got to be low for ultrasound. It can't, you can't be, you know, one educator for 15 therapists. It's, you know, our, our goal is four therapists, maybe five therapists per educator. So that's the benefit. It's not, you're not coming to watch other people ultrasound. You're coming to ultrasound yourself. And that's a huge learning piece to this. Yeah. It's amazing. That's why we love what you're doing, man. And then uh, in case people are looking for other dates, those will be rolling out. We've got to get through the early part of next year and the holidays and 
Stephen for like 20,000 talks at CSM and working booths and things like that. He will be at our ORS booth that we have there. So um, we'll be yeah. able to demonstrate, um, you know, some of this technique, but check our website for more dates there. And Stephen, it's awesome, man. Love, love working with you, brother. Can't yeah, wait to become an ultrasound specialist. I'm old. I got to check for DVTs every morning. That's right. Yeah. It'd probably be safe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the lifestyle too, man. You're traveling all over the place, man. You gotta, you gotta make sure you get off the plane and start assessing for DVTs. Well, I think bourbon is supposed to make your blood thinner, so that's that's typically. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. research is inconclusive, but I do. I, I subscribe to that as well. So, well, we just need more data. So, that's yeah, right. more data. We, we, probably, that's, that's, my, that's my motivation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I'm looking forward to stuff, it. Guys. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Everyone, check check out our site and look at the course content and um, hit us up if you have any specific questions because this is going to be really badass. All right, man. It's recoveryscience.com. Oh, recoveryscience.com. Yeah, I'm supposed to say that. Yeah. All right, peace out. Hook them horns. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. See you guys. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before we get out of here. First, want to say a uh, sincere thank you for listening all the way through. But also wanted to remind you that this podcast should not be considered medical advice. It is strictly entertainment. It's a way for us to try to keep up with what is ongoing within the BFR world. If you require some sort of medical attention, medical advice, please seek that from a licensed individual within your state. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.